How many times has it happened to you where you've been uh, scrolling on your phone or maybe just scrolling on your, or your computer and you run across a news headline that describes something that happened uh, recently? And maybe you're interested enough to read the article, maybe you're not, maybe you just keep scrolling. But as you keep scrolling, you run into another newspaper article headline that talks about the same event as the prior article, but talks about it in a totally different way. It kind of makes you think, were these two reporters talking about the same thing? Were they at the same event? Because how they're describing it in the headline is, is completely different. There's lots of examples. I've got a couple of them for you. Politics is great for this because, of course, news organizations fit all along the, the spectrum. So here's one from the day after the recent Canadian election. Okay, one headline says, Trudeau's reason for calling snap election fails. The second headline reads, Canada election result. Trudeau wins third term after early vote gamble. Now, if you knew nothing about Canadian politics and you read those two headlines, one of them with the word fail and one of them with the word win, you would be very confused as to how you should think about that. Or think about this one from the U.S. Biden caught between allies and critics on border policy. So, okay, there's some people for, some people against, but compare that with this one. Biden's immigration treachery threatens the nation, not just national security. Tell me what you really think, right, in the headline there. There's so many different contrasting bits of information floating around out there. I mean, how many times have you run across an article like uh, something like this? Studies show masks uh, are effective at reducing the spread of COVID-19. And then you scroll a little further and you see something. Studies prove masks are ineffective at slowing the spread of COVID-19. How in the world are we supposed to determine what is true and what is false in the age of the internet where there's so much information out there? How are we supposed to be able to sift through and, and determine what is false and what is fact? You know, a friend of mine said to me a few months ago, you know, if I do a search about COVID on Google, I get all of these kinds of results. But if I use this alternative search engine and search the exact same thing, I get results that are basically the opposite of what Google is giving to me. And I mean, it's true, and, and both of those sources are actually filtering results through an ideological lens, through a bias to promote a certain kind of information. And we've learned more in the last couple of years about how social media does this as well. If you're scrolling through Facebook, Facebook is giving you the kind of information that they know you like because they know what you read and what you've clicked on before. And so they're, they're giving you the same kind of information of information that they know you already are aligned with which can lead us to become more entrenched in our beliefs, whether they're right or not, because we're not being exposed to the other side very easily. So how do you discern all of this? I mean, I think we've, we've had this uh, uh, throughout the last couple of years, especially. And as the internet continues to be a big part of our lives, we struggle with what is true and what is false. Well, as we continue in our series in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to see today that Paul has some things to say about the nature of truth. That will help us in how we think about truth versus falsehood. We're in this series we've called Together. We're focusing on the unity that Christ has given to us. That, that in the first six verses we studied, we talked about how this unity is an accomplished fact. We have these bedrock ideas that we stand upon, these bedrock beliefs about Jesus that we stand upon and agree upon together. But also that unity is something that needs to be worked out in practice. And so this, this is a great idea, and I think we all agree with this idea, but we still come up against this, this um, 
anxiety in our society and, and even within the church sometimes about, well, we have to make a decision about something, don't we? And some of these things that people believe have to be true and some of them have to be not true, right? How do we discern between these kinds of things? In, cha- in verse 7 of chapter 4, Paul then switches a little bit from our unity to say, well, actually, you're all different, and Christ has gifted each of you differently, and the purpose of these gifts is that you will use them for works of service and for building up the body of Christ. And as we do that, as we all work together, we will reach unity in the faith and in our knowledge of the Son of God, and we'll become mature, we'll attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, Paul continues this section in verse 14 uh, and that's where we'll start today. And we can summarize these three verses with, with this statement. We grow up in unity when we pursue Jesus, who is the truth. We grow up in unity when we pursue Jesus, who is the truth. So let's read these three verses together, and then we'll uh, think about them together. Th- then we will no longer be infants, Paul starts by saying. Then meaning when we reach unity and when we attain maturity in, in the faith, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, I start with a bit of a confession here, okay? So my wife, Jenny, uh, and I have two kids. Josh is eight and Kenzie is six. And um, we were never really baby people. Uh, In fact, if you were to walk into a room with a baby, we wouldn't be the people saying, oh, here, let me hold your baby. Uh, And that worried us a little bit when Jenny was pregnant with our firstborn because we thought, you know, how are we going to figure this out? We're not really baby people. And we would kind of express that to people. And people would say to us, well, it's different when it's your own kid. And Jenny would look back and say, well, it better be, because we don't know what to do with these little people. And so sure enough, it is different when it's your own. You figure out the temperament of the child and the things that need to be done, and it's a lot of work, but, but you do figure it out. But then people would say to us when our kids were babies still, they would say, well, hold on to every precious moment, because soon it will be all gone, and you'll wish that you could go back to this baby stage. Well, I'm here to tell you that I'm a few years past the baby stage and I have no desire to go back to that stage of life. Maybe I will one day, but right now I remember it and think, no, I think parenting is a whole lot more fun now than it was then. Now, don't fear those of you who haven't had kids yet, or maybe if you're pregnant, um, there are lots of joyful moments along the way, right? An, an infant that falls asleep in your arms or you know, the, the milestones that these infants get to as they start to roll over and as they start to make sounds and make eye contact with you and then pull themselves up and start to walk. There's lots of joy to be found in all of those things. But it's a lot of work to have an infant in the house. You know, they wake up at all hours of the day and night and demand your attention and need your attention. You have to feed them. You have to change them. There's diapers galore. You have to bathe them. You have to feed them again. And then you have to change them again. And then you have to try and help them fall asleep. And then you repeat the process all over again. Now, I thought as I read through Ephesians 4, where Paul mentions infants, I thought, what if Josh, my son, had, it was still a baby? Like, what if he was still nine pounds? 
and still needed us to feed him a bottle, still needed us to put him to bed and rock him to sleep, still needed us to change his diaper. Like he could do nothing on his own. He still needed us in the same way. Eight years later, I mean, I think we would probably be a little frustrated because there's an expectation as a parent that your baby is going to grow, that the baby is going to mature. And so it made me wonder, I wonder what God thinks when we as his people stay spiritually immature like an infant. When we don't grow up. Because there's several places in the New Testament where this is talked about, and it's talked about on, not in, in glowing terms. Uh, one example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says to the church in Corinth, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? So spiritual infancy in this context means they're not being led by the Spirit, and they're fighting with one another and envious of one another. This is spiritual immaturity. If this is the place that we stay, if we can't get past that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5 is another example, starting in verse 11. The writer there says, We have much to say to you about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. So what is spiritual infancy here? Well, it's a refusal to learn, a refusal to grow, and a refusal to put into practice these teachings about righteousness. Right? These people had some basic understanding, but were not living it out in, in a right way. They were spiritual infants. So what defines spiritual infancy? Well, it's an immaturity. It's a lack of understanding. It's a lack of love. And Paul describes them in Ephesians 4 as not being rooted. In fact, the imagery he uses then is being tossed back and forth by waves in a storm. Uh, just the other day, I saw uh, some footage. There was an autonomous drone ship that was sent into the middle of a hurricane in the ocean just recently. So this thing was loaded with all kinds of, of um, devices to measure wind speed and atmospheric pressure and all this, but it also had a camera. And so you can watch what it's like to be on the ocean in the middle of a hurricane. And you can imagine from every movie you've ever seen with an ocean storm scene, it's kind of like that, but with poorer visibility. The, wind, the waves are going up and down and side to side, and, and the wind is blowing up so much of the water that you can't see past the next swell of the waves. And so it's unpredictable as to which way you're going to move. And, and that's what Paul says that it's like to be a, a, in spiritually immature. In fact, he says, it's like an infant being thrown into the waves. Think about an infant in the midst of a hurricane. Like that makes my parents' heart quicken a little bit. Like somebody needs to do something because a baby in the middle of a hurricane is going to drown for sure. And yet Paul says that's what it's like. If you're spiritually immature, you're going to drown in the storm. 
Now, what's the storm? Paul says the storm is the winds of teaching by, cunning and, by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So he's talking about false teaching. The immature Christian is not able to discern what is true from what is false and therefore is going to be grabbing and grasping at all kinds of different understandings of the world, tossed back and forth between all of these different teachings, not rooted and established in Christ. The word here uh, that Paul uses is actually uh, a word that's associated with gambling. It's like using loaded dice. These teachers are coming with loaded dice, inviting you to play the game, but the game is fixed. Now, there's a lot that the New Testament says about false teaching and, and our responsibility to be aware of it. I've chosen these six passages. There's lots more, actually, but these six speak to it. And I want you to, to listen for a common theme, like what defines false teaching according to these passages. So starting in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Or think about 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Or how about 2 John Verses 7 to 9, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Or Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Or think about 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul says, starting in verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people who are of depraved mind, people who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Or finally, 2 Timothy Chapter 4, starting in verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So lots of warning there to avoid false teaching. Now, what defines false teaching? Well, we saw a common thread there that false teaching denies the Lord Jesus Christ, denies the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, and pulls people away from obeying what Jesus has taught. Now, one example uh, that we've seen in the last decades in the church is the prosperity gospel. 
that through your faith, God wants to bless you financially or materially with physical things. That if you'll just do the right things, if you'll be obedient and pray hard enough with enough faith that God will give you that car that you want or that new house that you want or they'll give you that bonus that you want. These things are not rooted in the teaching of Scripture. They're not rooted in the words of Christ. They're a distortion of what Christ actually says about these things. So to combat false teaching, we need to keep our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. Jesus as the one who is supreme over the universe. Jesus who is the Lord of our lives. Remember Paul talked about those ones back in verse 4, 5, and 6? These are the common understandings of our faith. And focusing on the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ keeps us united and keeps us focused on what's important. So friends, let me say to you, there are lots of things around that are related to COVID that we want to grasp onto as the truth. And listen, when when Paul talks about the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming, we could ask, is there some of that going on with COVID and how it's being presented and how people are handling it? Absolutely. But we can easily get dragged away and distracted by all of that instead of having our eyes on Christ. Christ who unites us and Christ who gives us strength. So let's think about truth for a moment. What what is the nature of truth itself? Uh, Sometimes we think in our our modern and Western world, we we think about truth as a set of facts, right? Like uh, it's true that Canada is north of the United States. That's a fact. Or it's true that um, the, the earth revolves around the sun. That's a fact. Or it's true that cheese should never be put on a hamburger. That's a fact, right? Okay, I'm kidding about the last one. But we think about truth in these terms, or in our postmodern influence on our world now, we're starting to think, well, maybe truth is relative. Like, there's nothing that's absolutely true. So if something is true for you, that's fine. I'm going to choose to believe what I want to believe, and it might conflict with what you believe, but that's, you know, that's okay. What's true for me doesn't have to be true for you. Well, when we look at the New Testament, we look at what Jesus said in the Jewish understanding of truth, we find that there's actually a depth to this that goes beyond either of those understandings of truth. And and we find it in John chapter 8 and and John chapter 14 for two places. John chapter 8, Jesus says something that's become a famous quote that many people quote, and I'm not sure they know they're quoting the Bible. Jesus says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But in order to understand that, we need to go back a verse and see what else Jesus says. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what's the truth? A better question would be, who is the truth? Who is the one who sets you free? Well, it's Jesus himself. This is why Jesus says in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth itself. I am the embodiment of truth. As the creator and the sustainer of the whole universe, truth can be found by looking to me. And so we as people, as we look to Jesus to discern what the truth is, we are called to obedience to what Jesus commands. And this is how we learn who Jesus is. This is how we discover the truth. And as we discover the truth of who Jesus is, he gives us greater discernment to look around the world that we live in and discern what is true about the world, what aligns with his character. So this is why often in in, uh, Jewish terms, truth is used as, as a relational word. 
Like it's a relationship with Jesus. That's how we actually discover the capital T truth. And obedience and love are very closely connected. In fact, I'll give you a challenge. When you're reading the New Testament and you come across the word truth, look around it to see how far you have to go before you find concepts of obedience or love. It's probably not very far. One example is 1 Corinthians 13. Paul has been talking uh, about spiritual gifts, actually, in chapter 12 and chapter 13. And he sticks chapter, uh, chapter 12 and chapter 14. And chapter 13 fits right in the middle. And Paul starts talking about love. Now, we've often associated this love chapter, love is patient, love is kind, and uh, with romantic love. Like this was preached at my wedding and probably preached at lots of weddings, but really it's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about how we as believers in the church ought to love one another. And so he says, I'm talking about spiritual gifts, but my conversation about spiritual gifts is useless if we don't talk about love. Because if you have a gift to contribute to the body of, of Christ, you should. But if you don't exercise that gift in love, you're actually doing harm. You're not doing good. And you can actually know all of the things there are to know in this world. But if you don't have truth, or if you don't have love, rather, you're not really understanding the truth yet. So see what he does in, at the end of the chapter. He, he talks first about, about childhood, about immaturity in verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. So when I was immature, the things that I said, the things that I thought, and even the processes by which I developed the things that I thought was immature. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now he introduces knowledge again. He says, now I know in part. Then I shall know fully. Then being when I'm face to face with Christ in eternity, even as I'm fully known. So he comes back to this idea of, of truth and knowledge. And he says, even in my matured state as a Christian and as, just as a human person, I recognize I don't know everything completely. I don't know everything about how the world works. I don't know everything about God. This is Paul, by the way, who wrote tons of theology. I don't understand God completely because none of us will. But then he connects it back to love. Now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So friends, we, we, we're called to maturity. We are called to know the truth who is Jesus, and we are called to exercise truth in love. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. Maturity then, according to Paul, means a few different things. First, it means being rooted in the knowledge of Christ. Knowing who Jesus is, is, is part of the maturity process. It then means recognizing the limits of your knowledge while still embracing love. And it involves, says Paul in 1 Corinthians and back in Ephesians 4, it involves using your gift for the good of the body. Recognizing Christ, recognizing the limits of your human knowledge, embracing love and using your gift. If we do those things, we will grow into maturity and we will not be an infant in a hurricane, prone to all kinds of other philosophies. So friends, as we embrace the truth and as we embrace Jesus, we are actually able to handle the differences that we experience. So uh, N.T. Wright says this, growing up in the faith matters because without maturity, Christians are very, very vulnerable to all kinds of trickery that may well take them a long way from where they ought to be. 
So we're called to maturity. So how does Paul then continue here and tell us how we're going to continue to mature? He says, instead, so instead of being blown around in the winds of all the teaching and all of the understandings and philosophies that are available in the world, instead of all of that, we will speak the truth in love. We'll speak the truth in love. Now, there's two understandings that we have out of this word, speaking the truth in love. First is just the simple surface level understanding of speaking the truth. Paul is reminding us that we we are to continually speak the truth about Christ to one another, to remind ourselves that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to this earth, that he lived a sinless life, that he demonstrated power and authority by the miracles and teaching that he did, that he went to the cross and because of his sinless life, he was worthy to take upon himself the sins of the world, that he paid the penalty for those sins by dying on the cross, that he rose to new life again, that he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and that by faith in him, we can have access to eternal life with Christ. This is something we're to remind ourselves of often, because this is the the bedrock understanding of the knowledge of the Son of God that we stand upon together. This is one reason why we sing, is because through singing, we remind ourselves of these truths that are so central to our faith in a way that we remember them. This is why we gather in small groups and in church communities and in families around dining room tables to share with one another about the reality of Jesus Christ. We're called to repeat this to each other over and over. But this word speaking the truth also carries with it in the Greek a secondary sense of doing the truth. Like this is an action to perform. So not only do we understand the truth about Christ, but we put it into action And that's part of the maturing process. Remember the the passage that we read in Hebrews, part of the the challenge and critique there was that you know these basic things, but you're not living them. Spiritually mature people will understand the truth about Christ and will put those things into practice by obeying his commands, as Jesus says in John 8. And then Paul says, the way that we're supposed to do it is in love. Uh, Clinton Arnold says, Paul is aware of a tendency among some Christians to hold the truth and defend it in ways that are not loving. Uh, John Stott says it this way. This kind of made me laugh because it was actually quite relatable. He says, thank God there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. Amen. But, he says, sometimes they're conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their muscles ripple, and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. (laughs) Can you think of any examples in the past year and a half where it seemed like somebody was enjoying the fight? If we're going to be a little more introspective, have there been times in the last year and a half where you enjoyed the fight just a little too much? We are called to express the truth in love because truth and love are expressed by our actions. One commentator said, truth involves a true assessment of the facts and a consideration of what is real as opposed to an illusion, but it's much more holistic than what's done with the mind. At the least, it joins the coherence of act and word with relational fidelity. In other words, there should be a faithful relationship between what you believe and how you express what you believe. So here's the challenge to us as the church. If you are unable to hold an opinion about COVID, about politics, about whatever, 
about a moral issue. Even when you have a Bible verse that tells you that this is the right moral issue, the, the right moral stance to take on this issue. If you can't hold that opinion and not love somebody who thinks differently than you, there is a maturing that needs to happen within you still. If you can't um, love that person, and by love, I don't mean you, it's, it's not, it doesn't just mean not smack talking that person. It means loving them by being in relationship, by having conversation with them where you're hearing from them and getting to know their heart on the matter where you're actually sacrificing for them, where you're praying for their good. If you can't have that posture towards someone with which you disagree, there's a maturing work that needs to happen. And might I suggest that maturing work needs to happen in all of us. We confess, we speak the truth in love to one another. So then Paul says that we are going to grow uh, into and from Christ. Uh, now pay attention to the prepositions here. We're, we're growing to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So we're growing up into Christ. Now, what does that mean? It, it, it re- reminds us of verse 13, where Paul says, we are going to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Growing up into Christ meaning, means becoming more like him, means submitting to his lordship more fully, means o- obeying him more wholeheartedly. It, it means we're taking on his characteristics. We're obeying him and getting to know him as the truth as we do so. But this passage also tells us that as we grow towards unity, we're getting the strength to do so from Christ. We're growing up into Christ, but we're growing from Christ and gaining from him everything that is needed to be bonded together, just like the human body is bonded together. Paul reminds us here too that, that Christ is the head. That, that word is understood two ways usually in the New Testament, and actually both apply here. One is that he is the authority. He's the leader. He is the one to whom we submit. He's the one to whom we bow. He is the one who has the right to dictate how things should go. But this word is also sometimes translated as source. And so he is the source of the strength that we need in order to actually be united as a church and as fellow believers in him. So we grow into him and we grow from him. And I love this this picture because it reminds us that when our focus is on Christ, when our focus is on becoming more like Jesus, he gives us what we need for everything else. Uh, I ran across this quote from A.W. Tozer, this image this week, and it really struck a chord with me. And I want to leave it with you as, as we wrap up. This is what he says. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They're of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. (laughs) 
In other words, when we try to figure out all the lesser things, sometimes those things just divide us. Like, let's be honest, we're never going to agree completely on COVID. We're not. We're not going to be united around the details on COVID. But if our focus is on the resurrected Jesus Christ, the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father, who is worthy of all of our worship and our praise, and if our heart's affection is set on Christ and Christ alone, and we are submitting ourselves to him in every part of our corporate and individual lives, if that is our our main goal, our main striving in life is to be like Christ, well, he will give us unity that we can experience in in a full kind of way. We will support each other in such a beautiful and powerful way. It'll be beyond what we can imagine. As each part, Paul says, does its work, as we all contribute together, the Lord will bring this about for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of you, and we bow to you, we adore you. And we recognize this world we're living in is messy and we're pursuing unity even though there's so much going on to be divided by and, and it's really only a miracle of your spirit that we could experience it at all. So may our eyes be focused on you and you alone. As we worship you and as we surrender to you, would you work in us to unite us around your common or around your goodness and your grace and the common mission that you have given to us. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.